The thing is not how you are on your best days, how can you step up on your worst day? When everything is going terrible, when you're tired, when you're frustrated, when you're edgy, how do you treat other people? Fuck pain, fuck heartbreak. I'm still in love with life. From the multicultural headquarters of the future capital of the free-thinking states of America known as Los Angeles, this is the Drunken Dows Podcast. On this episode, author Tom Peake, who grew up on an upper Mississippi River Island in Minnesota, joins us from his home of 30 years, the Big Island in Hawaii, to tell us all about his new novel, Mount Kea, as well as three decades of adventures, varying from astronomy guide to Mount Kea to Eruption Ranger on Kilauea, all while dealing with the difficult questions pulling between science and native culture, both in reality and in his new book. Looks like there's a lot to learn today. And now, asking you all to spread the words that corporations are not persons, I'm Rich Evers. And my partner in crime, the savage philosopher and middle finger of the gods, Daniele Bolelli. As we invite you to lower the lights, batten down the hatches, and prepare to open your mind for the Drunken Dows podcast begins now. Welcome back, everybody. Another fine episode of the Drunken Dows podcast, episode 251. Away we go today with a visit to the islands. Yes, and we head to Hawaii. Well, not really. We go on Zoom and we catch... Uh, We're just hearing the rain and the earthquakes right yes, now. Yes, that's about all we got. Before we get going, quick thing... I've been telling you about my buddies at purestmushrooms.com. I want to tell you something that involves gnomes and mushrooms. So these guys, in order to bring you the best quality mushrooms available, we have uh, set up a fair trade with the gnomes of the woods. For their part, the gnomes whisper lullabies to the mushrooms, ensuring that they grow healthy and happy from spore to harvest. When the full moon is high in the sky... The gnomes invite us to their secret meeting spot in the forest for parting and trading. We then shake their hands, kind of, because it's really difficult to shake the tiny hands of a gnome, (laughs) wave goodbye to our diminutive friends, and return home where we package the only gnome-blessed mushrooms that money can buy. Wow, that's exclusive. Yeah, quite exclusive. So on that note, if you guys uh, already know about or if you don't and you're interested, there's uh, a whole variety of um, healing benefits that come from mushrooms. You can look at the medicinal properties of things like lion mane, cordyceps, chaga, turkey tail, reishi. Uh, I'm usually not a big fan of most supplements. These I don't consider supplements. They are essentially really healthy food that helps with a bunch of things. In particular, I've had success with cordyceps and um, and turkey tail. Those turkey have been tails. the ones that most of all have worked for me wonders. Yeah. You had good experiences with turkey tail before? Yeah, I have as well. I like that one. Sweet. So if you are interested, please use the code History on Fire at checkout at purestmushrooms.com. Again, that's purestmushrooms.com. 
you code history on fire for a discount i wonder if they're aware of our long relationship with the orgasm counting gnomes right i wonder if they're That's, related or cousins at least next time we hang out with the gnomes when we trade for mushrooms alaska <laughs> what the deal is it's like hey you guys are friends with our orgasm they're, counting buddy or they're in all kinds of businesses yes exactly gnomes <laughs> are the they have their gnomes, fingers and everything gnomes are fantastic yes <laughs> indeed <laughs> Shout out to DakotaPureBison.com. Uh, if you are in the market for anything bison related, Savannah just today made this giant chunk of bison in a stew that she cooked for eight hours. It was seriously one of the best things I've ever... just disintegrate into little slivers of awesomeness. Incredible. One of the best things I've ever eaten. So on that note, if you want to check them out, it's DakotaPureBison.com. Use the code HOF10 for a 10% discount. Again, DakotaPureBison.com, HOF10. Shoutouts, of course, to Omsellers and MateraWines.com for keeping the drunk in the drunken Taoist and supplying my never-ending appetite for wine with some goodies. Excellent. Uh, and, of course, the biggest thank you of all to the sweet folks parting with their hard-earned money to support us. Let the pottering begin. This month would be Lane Raper, Donald Chip Witten, Luis Pesquera, Yanni Linima, Jesse Rantakangas, Tommy Fong... Aaron Weisner, Clayton Payne, Benjamin Errett, Stephen McKee, Daniel Fischel, Jonathan Waterloo, Paul Donato, Ryan Marklin, Keegan Walsh. Nice. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You guys are awesome. We deeply appreciate your support. Uh, if you want to join this brave band of heroes, you can go at paypal.me forward slash dbolelli or just send it to my via PayPal through my email. That is... B as in boy, O as in Ohio, D as in Daniel, H as in Hawaii, I as in Iowa, 1974yahoo.com, body1974 at yahoo.com. And I, I took a recent peek at our Kiva amount, $215,000 in loans from our kind good fellow God. members. So the idea of a quarter of a million is within reach. It'll be a couple of years, but it's just completely incredible. Whoever That's insane. Thought, I never thought we'd get to 5,000. So it continues to be just an incredible thing. Join us at Kiva.org. You can select Team Drunken Taoist or any other team you want to uh, organize with. $25 will pay for a loan for somebody that will pay it back to you. I'm over 300 of them, and they've been paid back at a 98% rate, which is pretty incredible. So if you will. Uh, you like helping somebody out who's a stranger, which is good for all of us, kiva.org, and uh, join Team Trumpkin Taoist. So that's it. I think it's time to head to the islands. Let's do this. So here we go, ladies and gentlemen, a new Drunken Taoist episode. Joining us today, straight from wonderful Hawaii, is Mr. Tom Peake. Tom, very welcome to the Drunken Taoist. Aloha, Daniele, and uh, aloha, Rich. Delighted to be here. That's awesome to have you. And we're going to be chatting about a lot of things, but like, I guess the way the easy intro way for listeners is to mention that you are the author of two fiction novels Daughters of Fire and Mauna Kea uh, that you just released the second one and that these are both novels set 
in uh, the wonderful land that you have inhabited for many years now in the islands of Hawaii. And that is in many ways the novels are a product of uh, by now decades of experience of yours immersed in the culture, immersed in the land issues, immersed in some of the political issues that have rocked the islands over time and all of the good stuff. So maybe if you want to tell us a little, you know, why don't we backtrack before we even get to the novels? Why don't we go into how did you a good, uh, can we say Midwestern boy, like you come from the Mississippi River area. So I guess that qualifies as uh, almost Midwest. The, um, how did you end up in Hawaii? How did you end up with this love affair for the land and the culture and the people and everything else? So that's a long story, but I'll try to make it short. I grew up on, a, on an island called Great Cloud Island in the backwaters of the upper Mississippi River, south of the Twin Cities. Mm -hmm. And um, I got here by accident because we were in a struggle in the township uh, against a mining company that was strip mining sand and gravel to barge up river mm -hmm. for the expansion of the Twin Cities. And one of the people that had been involved in this was what in Hawaii we would have called her one of my aunties. Mm -hmm. She's a, a friend of my parents. She has known me since I was a, a keiki. Suddenly, one year, when she was 55, she disappeared to someplace called Hilo, Hawaii. After getting kind of disillusioned at years of politics and involvement with sustainability and whatnot and exhausted from all the work, I took a vagabond journey, kind of a vision quest, I suppose you'd say, or a desperate quest. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when I was in California camping and staying with people I knew, I saw that there was a cheap ticket to... Hawaii. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to go find out where, what happened to Teddy. Mm -hmm. Why did she up and leave, quit her job, sell everything, give everything away and disappear? Yeah, right? yeah. And where is Hilo, Hawaii? So I, I came there and when I got there, she was living actually in Kaha, which is near the, the homelands lots. It's a very Hawaiian place in a little 1950s bungalow, tiny Mm -hmm. on the water with her Filipino boyfriend who had a huge extended family. So suddenly someone who had no interest in Hawaii, because I grew up on a mighty Mississippi and I, I sailed and shipwrecked dove on Lake Superior. You know, I saw the calendars and the pictures of Waikiki. Well, suddenly I was here in Keokaha and suddenly immersed through um, Teddy and her boyfriend into the local culture and all the local food and everything. First day, she took me up to see Kilauea. <laughs> okay, that's a paradigm shifting thing to see the big caldera, right? Which wasn't erupting, but it was fuming and all of that. And then the next day up to Halipohaku, where in the novel, the, the astronomer's base camp is, um, two thirds of the way up Mauna Kea among the big cinder cones with these views of Mauna Loa that are, are eye-popping. And I realized, you know, this is this is like the Mississippi and Lake Superior, you know, on steroids. <laughs> and so I actually redirected, and I, I hung out for about a month sleeping on her floor and decided instead of heading toward Asia directly, I'm going to do that via the South Pacific. And I took a flight to Papaete in Tahiti, Mm -hmm. caught a packet boat from there to Bora Bora 
which was a magical experience in and of itself. And then hung around in Bora Bora until I could be taken on as crew with a Californian from Newport Beach who was sailing on the, uh, across the South Pacific. Mm -hmm. Well, anyway, after a whole bunch of things, swimming with whales off the coast of Niue, meeting the Polynesians in the South Pacific Islands, getting caught in a coup d'etat in Fiji. <laughs> yeah. um, by the time I was running out of money in Australia, I said, you know, and I was waiting to do another boat delivery, to be crew on a boat delivery. Mm -hmm. The skipper who I'd met in Bora Bora was delayed. And I realized if I wait, I'm not going to make it. And then I'm sleeping on my auntie's floor again. And she notices in the paper, hey, they're looking for a tour guide on Mauna Kea. So my first job was to be hired as the sole part-time, four-day-a-week tour guide. And when I'm on stint, I'm living on Mauna Kea. Mm -hmm. Nice. I'm doing my stargazing using the 20-inch 20, the 20 telescopes on the summit at that time and getting those visitor center program a little more up and running. I actually bought the first telescope, uh, an 11-inch. Then through all of that, I started meeting Hawaiians connected to Mauna Kea. The South Seas Vagabond was really having all these great primordial experiences of in the two of the most sacred places in the, in the archipelago. The effect of that was that when you're actually working with a purpose in a place like that, as opposed to being a tourist, you meet the people who are connected to it, including the Hawaiians, including practitioners, including elders. I was really quickly immersed in those cultural connections. So by accident, I got here and I was virginal. I hadn't read the South Seas literature. I hadn't read Michener's book. Not that that would have helped me, actually, in, you know, in the post-statehood period. You know, I wasn't like obsessed with Hawaii. I, I ended up there. I stumbled in there as a vagabond. So I was kind of and I was open. I'm, out, I'm kind of on a vision quest. I mean, I, I was I left pretty jaded. It burned out. And, and suddenly the Hawaiians took me under their wings and restored my shaken faith in human nature. When was that, by the way? 1987. Wow. So <laughs> that has been quite a while, yes. And I guess that's one thing that you bring up in your story right now, where you say you were able to make contact with a lot of the people for whom uh, Hawaii is their life, their homeland, their everything, and be... You know, traditionally, you hear a lot of stories of how, um, and this, I think it goes in any indigenous communities that have experienced colonization in a massive way, that, you know, a random white guy who show up in the neighborhood, not always all doors open there. You know, you have a lot of people who are going to be like, who the hell are you? Why are you here? What do you want? This is bad news. Right. Clearly, you had instead a very good experience. What do you think accounts for the fact that you didn't run into all the typical uh, racial tension that comes up with this, but instead you were pretty much welcome with open arms? Well, first of all, I was mm -hmm. on a big island. The Native Hawaiian presence here and its influence on all the other cultural groups, in part because of the presence mm -hmm. of Mauna Kea and the, certainly the presence of Kilauea, which is erupting periodically, was a place where the foundational principle of aloha was really pervasive and easier to defend and protect and act on than, say, what was happening in on Oahu, Honolulu, and on Maui. You know, I was on the yeah. big island, so that's one thing. The other thing is, 
I grew up in a little river town in the smallest township in the state of Minnesota, 400 people. We were islanders. We saw ourselves as different from the people on right. the mainland. We were nurtured by mm -hmm. the river, which is a mighty powerful force, okay? It's equivalent to Kilauea Volcano. And I don't sure. mean in a destructive sure. capacity. I mean in the primal yes. presence yes. of nature, yes. right? Yes. So I was already preconditioned to the awe of the place. And, you know, one of the reputations of Hawaii is that people, if they see that you are resonating with what they see, and by the way, this is true of all local communities. I've found it in rural communities elsewhere. But if you A, recognize, then resonate with what they value themselves, they're not going to put up barriers. They're going to say, hey, this is interesting. You know, how does this guy from Minnesota end up feeling so comfortable with us? People, I'm interested in different cultures. I didn't arrive here with a very parochial view like... Minnesota yeah. is the best place on earth. Right, right, right. right. And why aren't they eating lefsa and lutefisk here? You know, Hawaiians recognized my pain mm -hmm. from 20 years in politics right. and disillusionment to fight to save my own island. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. And then you build on like a shared experience, even though, of course, the experience is very different. You build on a shared experience because, you know, you can. And, and I mean, in some way, it's even more relatable because if he was just like, oh, he's the guy who's interested in our stuff is one story. But to see that, no, he has his own thing. He has his own journey. He has his own sacred places elsewhere. And because he understand that, he can relate to what we bring to the table over here. I think that's uh, that's also a different thing. You know, I think that uh, that will make people resonate a little easier, for sure. Well, Lauren, I would turn the question back to you. Mm -hmm. I mean, you came over here from Italy, mm -hmm. and you became uh, you had to navigate the culture here, just like I had to navigate the culture uh, Hawaii, which which has which means navigating a whole bunch of different cultures, right? Because there's strong Asian American presence as well. Yeah. And then at some point, you're accepted. How did that happen for you? What was it? And how much of it was who Daniele Bolelli is is a person? Sure. Versus as a stereotype. In other words, how did you, and then how did you, how were you changing in a way that people in California could say, hey, this guy's getting with the program. I mean, he kind of understands or there's, there, and there might be a role for this guy here. Well, the sexy Italian accent just brought the people, you know, to their knees. Yeah, because nobody understands what I'm saying. Not a single they word. They just see me just a whole different category. moving my hands a lot. And then I, uh, <laughs> they say, but he sounds funny. Like, look, he's laughing and he sounds funny. So we like him. He's a good core jester. And, uh, I think like a huge element when you talk about relating to people from all sorts of different cultures, is that people are usually, of course, they are going to respond badly if you are a racist freak, but they are also going to respond badly if you are overly romantic, like you're putting them on a pedestal and over-romanticizing and making it seem like you're looking at some fantastic animal at the zoo kind of thing. <laughs> like most people respond well if you treat them like human beings, you know, where you bond over food. It's like, what do you like to eat? What do you, you know, you bring it back to a level that's, is interested, but is also very basic and shared human experience. And that you have your, you know, anything that makes people laugh is good. Humor is huge. 
So if you can go along with the jokes, if you can start the jokes, if you can do that, that goes a very long way. If you can relate on um, not what you think they are about, but what they are telling you that they are about, the things that they are into, you know, the I think there's a huge element there to just be able to to mix with like because I think even in terms of social life, right? I've been thinking like I've been in places where uh, the income level and the level of education is crazy high, and in some way I totally feel out of place. And but in some way I can play the game enough to chat with these people. I relate on some level, and I've been in like straight up ghettos. I've been able to relate there because to me it's like. I'm I'm not gonna get stuck on the on the things that are the unique markers of of a particular group. I'm gonna get more into the shared experience aspect of it all. It's like what is that both you and I can relate to uh, here and now. So I just want to underscore that was a fantastic answer, and the elements of it are not just applicable to people who are visiting Hawaii. This is really a critical set of observations you've made at this time where polarization and violence mm-hmm. is spreading and tribalism in a narrow, narrowly defined sense as an yep. exclusive thing, yep. uh, you know, which has always been the plagues of all tribes, right? I mean, <laughs> if you're, you know, so, so this, the, the, this is not just applicable, this conversation. And when you talk about like the food, for example, every culture has a an identity related to food. And if you cut show up, like a lot of people do, well, I tell why, well, I, I, I don't I don't eat raw fish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like right, right. you're out already. What, yeah. What is this? Yeah. But you eat roasted pork. <laughs> but you know, the food is an element, but you also said you're listening to who they say they are rather than imposing some um, romantic, or it's not, or it can be also a negative sure. preconception of who they are. In other words, if you're paying attention, my experience in traveling around in various places in the world is that if you are open and interested, people are going to appreciate that, and they're not going to put up resistance because there's something in the in this is another discussion we may get into about human nature. Not everybody believes that when an when a someone who's not from the culture shows up, the first thing you do is, you know, beat their head in. Right. Polynesians are among the leaders in having this aloha concept throughout Polynesia, with some notable exceptions in certain periods of history. But for the most part, and you find this in today too, if your assumption is that maybe when someone shows up, we should find out what, how is it that they showed up. So mm-hmm. there's an openness on that end. But I often tell Haulis, which means it's often meant Caucasians, but it actually the deeper meaning is it's foreigner, whatever the foreigner mm-hmm. is that comes to Hawaii is a, is a Haole. Yep. And that's an interesting story about that, how that name comes up. I often have told Haulis, because I didn't get blowback from people when I showed up. I mean, I think I I could say in 30 years, I've had one example of a negative reaction from a local person. And it was because he was impatient to get a, on a telephone and he didn't know me and it was out of context. And I just, he stereotyped me and that was it. Yeah. Otherwise, I never got anything. I always thought they were saying howdy to me. Oh, no. <laughs> it's very confusing. <laughs> but a lot of Howleys grow up in a largely segregated American society, arrive, and their fear is discernible 
Mm -hmm. They don't take their sunglasses off, which drives locals nuts because they can't see your eyes. Yep. But they create an opaque thing. And, and, and for indigenous cultures that I've interacted with, they're responding to you intuitively, not intellectually. Like, who is this person? They're, they're trying to feel that. And a lot of Haoles arrive here out of their own fear or uncertainty of the unknown, or they're not necessarily even prejudiced. They're just insecure. They put up uh, bind, blinders so to the person trying to view them. And they, they're the only people I know that actually get into trouble in Hawaii. Right. So all of these things are important principles as we move into this period of in, what seems to be increasing conflict. Mm -hmm. But there's one more that I would add to your list. And that goes back to the question of kuleana. The shorthand is responsibility or duty, but it's a bigger concept. It has to do with what is the path that this one individual follows? And are they staying on their path mm -hmm. or are they stepping on someone else's path, right? Like the missionaries did. Yeah. At some point, if you get the blessings of Hawaii and if they ask you to be involved to help protect that, mm -hmm. but you don't want to profane yourself by getting involved in the dirty business of that really turns off anybody. I mean, it's in other words, and in fact, it's, it's, I put it too abstractly. It's a, it's a more natural process. So the first time I was asked to be involved, which because I could be in a cross-cultural advisory role, and that happened early on in 1993, there, there was a big healing ceremony, and they asked me to be part of thinking through the limited media coverage for this event, Kamakaeha, which was meant to do a healing a week before the 15,000 Hawaiians marched on the 100th anniversary of the overthrow in Honolulu, right, to assure there was no violence. Early on, I was actually involved with those meetings. That also gave me an opportunity to see how advanced this culture is in terms of, compared to American culture, which is more of a warrior military culture, how they were on things like compassion, giving the person the benefit of the doubt, at the same time that they follow strict protocols to assure the integrity of what's going on. If I had said, no, I'm, I can't do it. And actually I did resist because I, I was still worn out, but the Hawaiians said, oh, don't worry. We know that you're, you're feeling wounded. Don't worry, we'll protect you. <laughs> and so what are you gonna do? Say, no, I'm too busy. No, of course. What ticks off, I think, not just Hawaiians, but other indigenous people is, oh yeah, they'll come to the sweat lodge, but when we're fighting a pipeline, hey, they, they, they don't show up. Yeah, 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 of, yeah, course. yeah, yeah of course. Okay, so that's a really important issue because that is a pervasive problem also in responding to conflicts that are going on in the, in the continental United States, too. Like you Absolutely. can sympathize with the Black Lives Movement, but how come you didn't yeah, yeah. help yeah. us out? Yeah, if you don't do this, like if otherwise, again, it beats like you're taking a stroll at the zoo. You're not really uh, being involved in any meaningful way, not in a daily life kind of way and not in a daily and not in a meaningful way on issues that count. And speaking of issues that count, of course, you bring this up a lot in your writing because it has been, of course, because it's been part of your life. Tell me a little bit about the your experiences with Hawaiian activism. What are some of the key issues that have been uh, both the ones that we know about, maybe some that we don't, uh, but like what are some of the key things that the people are struggling with in Hawaii that you have been uh, you have been involved with? And I would just like to hear a little bit more about that. So 
Hawaii continues to be under colonial pressure. And some Hawaiians I've heard say there's as much pressure now as there was when the local businessmen combined with the Americans did a coup d'etat to overthrow the constitutional monarchy of the queen in 1893. So that has manifested itself in a variety of ways because after statehood, particularly in 1959, that opened up the gravy train for real estate development and tourist development. Lands which were in trust to be routinely through a, a largely corrupt political structure in Hawaii, those lands ended up becoming shopping malls and subdivisions. Some of the homelands lots is where the astronomers actually have their offices. And then the, the lands on the top of Mauna Kea. So there's this whole question of lands. And then there's the whole question of, because of real estate development, which is encouraged by the realtors, continual increase in the cost of, of housing. We're in an honest-to-God housing situation. And in a place in, in Polynesia, the idea that there are people living on the street, it's like unconscionable. Mm -hmm. But it's a reflection of the colonial impact of development. There's also, so a lot of Hawaiians, I think more Hawaiians now live, Native Hawaiians, but a lot of local people. It's not, it's not just the Hawaiians. I mean, they've been displaced. They're living in places like Las Vegas and Portland and Seattle because it's, it's cheaper to work there. To, to live there, to get housing. These are people rooted to the place. So it's very painful. Mm -hmm. Then, of course, after statehood, if you read my first novel, Daughters of Fire, it really, which the locals say, well, brah, you went nailed the politics of the state, which is, really shows how corrupt the state has been. Um, a recent study indicates that uh, out of Illinois suggests that Honolulu is the most corrupt city in the state. In the, in wow, the state, <laughs> that takes some really doing. <laughs> but it's a it's a disgusting display. There's That's the, amazing, okay? oh, there's no place more horrible than Honolulu. I mean, yeah, the, yeah. the the endless skyline of cheap hotels that are forty stories tall, and the one I, I hate the most as well is the west coast of Maui, golf courses and giant resorts that nobody can afford. It is disgusting to see how it's been completely taken over so land and power in hawaii which was written like 30 years ago talks about that corruption and those the relationships and how did everything how did all this happen after statehood but the point is that after statehood there was just so much money and development at stake it really tore at the fabric of integrity which the monarchy and whatnot, you know, they, they were like educating their people and they, they were a monarchy, but they were sharing the, they had a different set of Kulianas. Anyway, all of that was disrupted. So you've got the corruption, you've got the house and, we, and lately you guys wouldn't know about it necessarily, but there's been huge bribery scandals, scandals over law enforcement officials. Um, we're in the middle of, and it's because the federal government, the federal FBI is now involved. My Daughters of Fire deals with all that. That's that's part of the backdrop of that. The other thing is what's happened to sacred places. Okay, Mauna Kea is just one of a series of sacred places that are either now military compounds, because the military plays a big role in all of this, because after World War II, there, there was an acceleration of the militarization of the islands. That's what part of the overthrow was all about, getting Pearl Harbor for a coaling station, right? Yep. So for military vessels going to the Philippines. So at the same time, and I've witnessed half of this, I've lived here for half the Hawaiian Renaissance movement. 
this is a, a rediscovery of culture by the native Hawaiian people, the language, the hula, the Polynesian navigation, flaky guitar and other music, and political sovereignty, the, the search for an alternative to the colonial setup that we currently have. And that whole thing has been going on. So there's been a constructive response by the impacted culture that's been more constructive than what the political establishment here has done. But that renaissance has forced the political establishment to just do at least window dressing. I don't know. You know, you ask if that's a huge question. You yeah, ask. of course. No, it's a bit. And I and I guess uh, no, that paints the picture for sure. And I guess you know specifically in your latter book. You talk a lot about the whole issue, which, you know, made the news also internationally and everything about the telescope at the top of the mountain and the clash with, if you want to give, you know, for people who have not been up to speed with the stuff that happened over the past few years, if you want to give like a super quick synopsis of what the whole issue was about. And I know, you know, asking you know, for super quick synopsis of something like this is like, well, let me start about four million years ago when the earth cooled down. You know, it's like there is a lot, but, you know, what we can get to people who are not familiar to bring them up to speed. I've been involved with the mountain first as a tour guide on Mauna Kea. Yep. And then ultimately, I had to quit my job when the astronomers proposed over 100 new telescopes and began seriously discussing closing the road to the public. Right. Okay. right. My local friends said, hey, Brian, you, you belong up here. We want you to stay. And I was like, no, nah, I'm out of here. I can't do it. It was a moral question, right? Yeah. But anyway, so then I got involved because, uh, with the movement because I was asked to be involved and play some role at first pretty much behind the scenes, but ultimately quite open in, in, in hearings and whatnot. It's a hard question. I've seen too much, but I'll try to simplify it. One, there's no question that Mauna Kea is the last great place in the United States to have an observatory. And that's because we've polluted all the skies with pollution and light pollution. Right. Okay? So the astronomers are desperate. This is the important backdrop that it sometimes gets missed. But the context of the cultural and legal clash over Mauna Kea is inside a much bigger battle between the European astronomers and the American astronomers. Mm -hmm. Who is going to dominate astronomy? Who's going to get the bylines and the academic credits in the 21st century? In the 20th century, it was the University of California and Caltech because they had the world's biggest telescopes, first in California, then in on Mauna Kea. Mm -hmm. The Europeans are building a much bigger telescope than the 30-meter telescope. They're, they're building a 39-meter in South America. Meanwhile, there's a conflict going on between the East Coast, Carnegie-associated, Carnegie Foundation-associated astronomers, and the West Coast Caltech astronomers. There's a 100-year feud between those people. Do they flash gang signs and scream West Coast at each other and just uh, like in uh, Tupac style or <laughs> are just they just... <laughs> Mount Wilson taunts. <laughs> yes, know, I say. We rule. Yeah. You know, and I tried to capture some of this in, in the novel with the astronomy characters, the, the fierce conflicts that go on, academic competition. They would never get together to build a telescope until very recently. Neither one of them have the money to finish these two big telescopes, the giant Magellan... Yeah. TMT. Okay, that's the backdrop. You've got a fierce academic battle. And that makes Mauna Kea, which can look into the north and southern hemispheres skies because of its position in Hawaii, 
a unique and excellent place to do it. There are some other reasons too about atmospheric stability. So there's a huge incentive for American astronomers. They, they're almost desperate to get it. And especially because the Europeans are building a bigger telescope and they have the money to do it. And the Americans don't because they divided it. Instead of building one big telescope, Carnegie did their thing, Caltech did their thing, okay? So they kind of screwed up. Then what happens is they want it on the most sacred mountain in Hawaii, home of goddesses, mm -hmm. highest burial site in all of Polynesia. It has a high sacred lake that has very significant metaphysical importance to Native Hawaiians. And you have a local culture that has, this is their mountain that they're connected to, you know, well beyond the Native Hawaiians, you know, the people who've been here for generations. They built all those telescopes. At the max, it was 22 telescopes up there when the original thing was there was going to be one. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the local community was pretty pissed off over many years. And then they keep coming. And all they did is they, they, the Hawaiians would say, you're past capacity, carrying capacity for this mountain, let alone that it's our sacred mountain, and let alone that we were supposed to benefit from it, not a bunch of international astronomers, because, no. and that's true by law. The Hawaiians have all the law, federal, state, and international law on their side. So in, in Caltech and University of California routinely um, winked at the laws and, and avoided that until they were hauled into court. So so you, that, so you have this whole history, then they come along with the TMT. And then when the, uh, when the Hawaiians and, and a lot of other local people blocked the road and wouldn't let the construction companies come up, that's when the astronomers finally said, well, we'd like to compromise. Well, it's a little late. You know? Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. Okay, so I'm trying to keep it at the big picture. There's yeah, many yeah. multiple things, but a lot of it is legal, and it's never been about culture versus astronomy because the Hawaiians know that they have a whole tradition of astronomy that relates to navigation. You know, they're a star culture. That was really the way that astronomers kept themselves in delusion around the moral question of putting pressure on these people when most of their sacred places had already been impacted, now they were going to ask for more. And can't you compromise on your most sacred place in yeah, all yeah, our telego, okay? Astronomers created that idea that it's culture versus science. That never came from the models of Native Hawaiians. That was a, that was created by the, the scientists. That makes sense. And also because of their deep wound that goes back to Galileo and Copernicus and, the, and Darwin and the Christian church was also a natural reflection of their own fear. Are the Hawaiians now doing this to us in the same way that the Christian church did? I see you guys nodding. And I see Rich nodding particularly because he, 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 you're involved with the astronomy community. So you, you does this... I tell Galileo's story every night about the fact that he identified the moons of Jupiter and couldn't even tell his pal the Pope because he would be fed to Inquisition. Copernicus before that. Had it figured out a hundred years earlier, kept it to himself on his deathbed, slid it to his friends, check this out, but don't tell anybody. Yeah, there's a fear of religion when it comes to science. And you could feel it every day. I get flat earthers and 6,000-year-old earthers. I'll speak to 10 of them tonight that are convinced. Even though from our point of view, at twilight, you can see the ocean there. You can see cargo ships dropping away. And I was like, well, how do you explain that? I, I don't know if you know this, but I was born in Tripler Hospital 
and um, off of Schofield Barracks. So I'm I am native. So the the Howley, uh, I don't know if that fully applies to somebody who has actually arrived at the location there. I may not be quite tan as not, but my uh, spirit definitely arrived there. And we get back there as much as we can. But yeah, I'll never forget. I made a trip out there for some function we were doing for one of the movie companies, and the traffic in L.A was equaled by the horrible traffic getting from the airport to Honolulu. It was just indescribably disappointing. But yeah, I mean, that's it's definitely a thing. I mean, these folks, they believe that the Earth is 6,000 years old and don't want to hear any of our nonsense. And it's... So I, I have a follow-up question for both of you on this, since you've been, both been to the big island. But before I do that, just one thing I want to mention, which is illustrative of the Native Hawaiians' um, compassion and perspective... Aloha has to do with truth as well as, and, and pononess, which is to, to be righteous, to be morally correct. I played a role also as a member of the astronomy community and, and being involved with the Native Hawaiian community. I was able to be kind of an intermediary in some ways, not to try to get something for either group, but to help people understand yep. what was happening. Yep. So when there was finally going to be the first big meeting between, I think it was a dozen astronomers and a dozen Hawaiians, one of the elders and I uh, sort of talked or strategized ahead of time. And I said, listen, when you sit down across from those guys, uncle, remember that they carry a deep wound. And when they look at you, they won't see you. They see the Inquisition. And he's and here was his response. He took my hands and he said, Thank you so much for telling me. How's that? So he could understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He could make the connection. Yeah. So they could understand and not portray him in that light speaks to a very strong culture. Which is key because yeah, you want to understand where because you know, we're very often in communication, what's being said. You don't necessarily know why it's being said or where it's coming from or why the hell are you talking to me like this because I have nothing to do with whether like there seems to be some misplaced thing. And so in when you know where somebody's coming from, there are ways you can massage your message in such a way as to be able to cross the barriers, cross the tight guard that somebody's lifting up and be able to communicate as human beings for sure. That's key principle of communication, hundred percent. Absolutely, yeah. we don't seem to communicate very well these days, which is a true tragedy. It's funny. I get when I get my flat earthers up there. You can literally show ships dropping away, and it's like, well, it's an optical illusion. No, it's not. It's a curve, man. Why do I? Why the willingness to believe nonsense is incredible. And of all things, the Game of Thrones show caused more trouble than anything because that presented the ice wall concept to them which they glommed onto because that's what keeps the water from pouring off the side now. <laughs> so why don't we have any pictures of the ice wall? Well, it's covered in guns, man, because we ain't allowed to see it. Well, it's just unbelievable how deep these folks so dig just to be contrarian. You know what? Uh, have you seen? Have you guys seen the show? Uh, it's a TV show called The Boys. Oh, yeah. You saw that one? Yeah. So The Boys is hilarious because it kind of shows up what's happening today in terms of mass communication. You have this mass corporation with superheroes that are actually absolutely awful, terrible people. Yep. But the part that's interesting is how everything gets spun. 
how you can be, you know, like what some of the quote unquote superheroes are doing and they are absolute monsters. But the way the, the machine behind it spin it and anytime something real is shown about them is like, oh, you're not going to believe the, the evil corporate media, what they are showing, the reality, let us show us. And that's a funny game because it's, uh, you know, on one end it's a superhero TV show, on the other end is a perfect photography of what's happened. It's a perfect off photograph of what's happening today in terms of mass communication, cult of personality and all that. I mean, there's one character that's like the... It's funny because you would have to announce it because apparently lots of people didn't get the memo that uh, there's a guy who's like massacring civilians left and right, is in love with an actual Nazi, and you have to tell people, oh, by the way, guys, that's the bad guy because the guy is clearly modeled on some political figures who are all familiar with, and uh, people like that. They are like... Well, he's genuine. He said for what it is. And you're like, oh my God, you know, there was your head here. The point was about five miles away and it clearly went way past what we we're trying to get to. But yeah, I think part of the problem is so many years of uh, stuff coming to light when you realize that, yeah, your government and your institutions have lied to you. So many years where you see the typical corporate media having lied to people, people rightfully then are distrustful and think like, okay, there's some bullshit, there's an agenda, there's this, that, and the other, which should be a great place for like smart skepticism to kick in. And instead what happens is that, oh, since uh, the corporate media is messed up, I'm clearly not going to believe what the New York Times is telling me. Okay, so far, maybe we are in the same... I'm going to believe Alex Jones. And you're like, oh, fuck. No, that's not where we are trying to go here. You know, you're, you're really missing. And I think that's a lot of that happens. Uh, like, we are in this post-truth period where there's so much information, most of that crappy, and people don't believe in essentially anything other than what they've already decided they want to believe. Well, no one wants to believe that America is not the Rebel Alliance. They are the empire. Right. It's tough to swallow. Yeah. But yeah, it's absolutely yeah. true. 700 military bases around the world to keep our arms around everything. It's funny. It's a strange uh, process that we are going through. Where you, you know, you would think that, yeah, the internet and everything would lead to this uh, greater understanding and greater spread of good information. No, it's greater spread of information, period, which doesn't necessarily imply a quality to it. So you're going to have a lot of great stuff drowned in a bunch of terrible stuff. And now you're asking for essentially people's intelligence to be able to separate one from the other. And it's not that easy, clearly. That's, well, people, that's part of the game. radio would also be a possible unifier or bridge building. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course, right? of course. Then they yeah. thought television would be. Yep. And there was yep. a struggle within television led by people like Rod Serling and others. But ultimately, and then and then the thing happened with movies. And yep. the most articulate person I've heard talk about it was Coppola describing, hey, what's happened to movies is exactly what happened to television. And... It's happened to music. Yep. Okay. And remember, there are four corporations owned by stockholders who publish 90% of all the literature, all the books in America. Yep. 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 Okay. So if you're trying to understand why we're in this, there are economic incentives not to countervail 
the main storytellers these days are movies and the internet, but it is an argument just based on the need for bridge building. That's the traditional role for novelists. Okay, and my novels have been described by people as old-fashioned. It's not just that there are like uh, pen and ink drawings in them, like old, because <laughs> they're adventure stories. Yeah. And so, you know, if you remember that from Mark Twain or Joseph Conrad or Mo reading Moby Dick, you know, there's those beautiful drawings. But they're, they're, they're built that way so that the, the, it takes a lot more effort to pay attention and then as honestly as you can describe all the parties involved and have people evolve. Yeah. Okay. So those books, if you, if, if people like traditional fiction, both of my novels are exactly that. And fortunately I have smaller uh, independent publishers who are not part of the corporate thing who are old enough to remember that kind of thing. But I, I want to make a strong argument for that kind of fiction which is also different than the fiction that says, this is my grievous and I'm going to write my story. Yeah, yeah, of course. Because you can find all of those. Sure. And cumulatively, if you read them all, then you can do the bridge building. But a lot of times it just adds to that sense of resentment. It can sometimes fuel either in reaction or whatever to prejudice. Right. We have to look at some fundamentals. If you want to change the dynamic that you guys just absolutely accurately described and by the way it's not about science versus facts either right right how to deal with what daniele just said there's been more than a generation of distortion by the mainstream media going back to vietnam and the red scare before it sure of course <laughs> and world war ii before that and on and on there's a, a larger need to clean up everybody's act who's involved with storytelling whether you're in the media I can't believe that we're watching all these Marvel movies. I mean, uh, whatever yeah. happened to... Yeah, yeah, no, it's been the, the dominant thing over everything else right now. I guess one thing that I wanted to throw out there, since we were talking about it before we started recording, and he was, of course, very interested. So I guess before we wrap up, I wanted to ask, uh, because before we started recording, you were talking about some of the issues related to climate change. Some of the... And you were saying, look... There are things that I've studied, there are things that are involved in that lay out what the problems are, and they lay out exactly what the solutions would be. Of course, part of the reason why the solutions are not implemented is because they require a redesigning of our priorities as a society, redesigning this notion of infinite growth that's at the root of our system, which is simply has no parallels in nature. And of course, there is a lack on the part of people who stand to make a big profit into this system to change anything fundamentally about this system. He said the, the solutions are not mysterious, but they are politically difficult. Yeah. And it seems like the puzzle of the whole problem doesn't seem to be. It's like, how could we possibly affect the atmosphere? If you take a four foot globe in a, in a library, the lacquer on it is thicker than the atmosphere of the earth. So the thought that we shit out kilotons of carbon every day for a hundred years how can people not figure out that that's going to do it you wouldn't shit in your own aquarium if you lived in one you know it's just madness that the almighty dollar and us to get every drop of oil and every piece of coal out of the ground so some fucking asshole can have 10 more dollars it's just completely unacceptable but when we're at a point where these billionaires which we're gonna have a trillionaire before we know it you know how do you battle that 
because they'll buy everybody out. But it isn't just the trillionaires. I mean, what killed this, this, the, the no-growth sustainability movement in the 1970s? It was also the uppies. The children of the 60s who decided that they were actually going to outdo materially the standard of living that their parents had, that they were critical of when they were in college, but then went out and replicated it, magnified. I mean, I it's been years since I've seen the figure, but the typical American child in a, um, uses something like 32 times the resources of a child in a third world country. So every time someone has three children and then raises them with those expectations, they're talking about, you know, um, not it, 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 those yep. three children are equivalent to like 90 people yep. in terms of the impact on the, on the resource impact or the environmental impact. So th these are really tough problems to deal with because as Danielle said, used the term, you've got to redesign your society. This is, it's going to involve some kinds of, I'm not going to call them sacrifices because it may turn out that people might actually be happier if they didn't have to be on this treadmill of making sure that they replace their car every time and that they've got all these, they got to change all their clothing all the time. And every five years, they got to get a new washer and dryer because instead of lasting 35 years, they only, they're designed to die within seven years, you know, but there's no there's no political leadership since the Reagan era on that. And everyone who was involved in political leadership was targeted by the right wing to get rid of. And that's and and then both political parties are equally culpable. So I want to say, you know, I agree with you that there are huge, powerful billionaire interests um, that um, Rich has just identified, but that's just the tip of the iceberg because they're supported by Democrats and Republicans and the broad American public that can't somehow conceive of a different way of living. Now, this is another thing that when you guys have been to Hawaii, can you pick up how there are other values besides material values in the local culture? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And there's a stark difference between like this latest ground of well-heeled retirees who are moving to Hawaii and the local community that's like satisfied that they don't get as much for the for the job, but they can still go to the beach. They they, yeah. they family is really important. In yeah. other words, there are family, nature, food, traditional things that yeah. can't be replaced by no matter how much stuff you have materially. Yeah. And you're both nodding. You've seen that. Yeah, of course. Of course. Well, and it's so sad. I mean, it's like Milton Friedman and just all the money you can at the cost of everything is more important than the happiness. Yeah, they don't exactly. care about it at all. It's just when everybody with the MBA is out to squeeze everybody as hard as they can, it's a difficult situation to be in because I don't think they want to uncouple that. I think they're very happy in their posh places and above everybody and willing to watch everybody suffer. I think I saw Walmart's profits were $130 billion last year. So each one of the Walton family will get twenty-two to twenty-seven billion dollars. Yet eighty thousand of their employees qualify for food stamps. These are things like you think the common man could open their eyes and say, "This can't possibly stand yeah. or even be legal," but we just yeah, accept it. I think the common man may understand this, but the political elites have not paid attention to it. I grew up in Minnesota, and I watched all throughout the Midwest one corporation 
destroy the the vitality of small rural towns by building their Walmarts. Yeah. Because all the other merchants could no longer compete. Yeah. You lose 15 hardware stores and 30 grocery stores, and now everybody's beholden to these guys. It's it's a disaster. But we saw it. In other words, the people saw it. They didn't like it. They were forced to use Walmart, but they saw what it was doing. Who's really responsible for ignoring these problems? One reason there's so much anger in rural America right now is because the political establishments that are largely dominated by, on the on the two coasts do not have a feel for the impact that all of that in the in the latter part of the 20th century dramatically changed a kind of cohesive rural life. It's not all about racial prejudice. It's about that's there too. It always has been. Sure. But it's about a many much much greater disorientation, and it's not even about the evangelicals, which is a, is only a certain portion of those that anger. But the political elites have routinely, in all the years since I left politics, they've ignored almost all those important issues and their impact, particularly yeah. in the middle of the country. Of course, they have no incentive, and and partly because political parties, which used to be big broad umbrellas now are really just confederations of single-issue organizations. And that's true of the Democratic Party as well as the Republican Party. It's you just, politicians are stuck with having to just go out to these donors. It's a handful of people. But the thing they remember is there's hope in recognizing that some of the anger is justified, but there isn't, political leaders are not providing alternative ways for people to respond constructively. Now, one of the things that was a big eye-opener for me to bring it back to, to uh, Hawaii is that things are very different here between the Polynesian tradition and the Asian-American traditions, which include Buddhists and Taoists and Confucianists. It's one of the most diverse places, despite your, your little your opening logo, you know, that you guys use. You know, actually, the Big Island is like, <laughs> may even be more, in the studies, may even be more diverse. So there's a lot of modeling that can happen. In other words, instead of feeling despairing, I'm hoping, I wrote my books not for the local community that knows all of what's in my novels. I wrote it for the people where I come from to, to, so that they can get kind of an idea of, that there might be some hopeful redesign. In other words, it's not a story, it's not a proposal, it's a story, but you're nodding. Can you see how it could be a constructive influence in rethinking the paradigm? Which, I mean, I think is what we need more than anything is having those discussions that say, okay, this model is clearly not working. What else could be working? What else that we can try? What are the, some of the modifications that we can implement that would lead to ultimately a better life for as many people as possible? And that, I think, is the key question that we should always be asking, that we should always be exploring in whatever we do, you know, because ultimately... If you are thinking about anything beyond the present moment, if you're thinking in terms of legacy or future, if you don't come up with good answers to that, there is no future, you know? So it's like that is as important as it ever gets. And so I appreciate the fact that that's a big focus on what you do with your novels. And I think that's precisely why we are having this conversation, <laughs> because we are on the same wavelength in that regard in terms of realizing that those are priorities. Well, and one one of the reasons I was excited to talk to you is because I met you through my our mutual dear friend Arthur Rosenfeld, Monk Youngbro, 
mm-hmm. who's uh, now a Taoist monk. Arthur's books provide an accessible, you know, they're page turners. They provide his novels. They provide an accessible set of Taoist ideas to begin that individual redesign in your own mind. In other words, we could spend all our time talking about Trump, but there's no point in it. Sure. Needs to be a deeper discussion. I want to also recommend, so any of Arthur Rosenfeld's stuff, my favorite of all his books is called Yen, and I understand it's going to have a new title and there's going to be a new version of that. That's an amazing fable about Lao Tzu meeting the turtle. I mean, Lao Tzu and the turtle. Mm -hmm. That is one of the best books I've read in the last 20 years. But there are a number of these. So you, and and there, you walk away realizing there's a, there's a larger reality than the one that we're exposing ourselves to through the media and so on. The other thing is I want to recommend Sulak Subraksa, who is a Buddhist monk and activist from Thailand. And his book, The Buddhist Wisdom of Sustainability, is one of the most honest and useful books I've ever read since Small is Beautiful by E.S. Schumacher back in the 70s. And this is a guy who hangs out with the Dalai Lama, okay? Sulak Subraksa. I think I've said his name correctly. And um, the Buddhist wisdom of sustainability. Uh, because what it does is, it, it, these are people that are, all, he's coming from also a traditional culture, Thailand. So when you see him talk about uh, these issues, it's like talking with Native Hawaiians who see it in a very different way. It's very empowering for those of us who have come from an imperialistic, colonizing, materialistic, militaristic society that, as my sister said, my sister, one of the things my sister said after she read, uh, at some point, I think it might have been after she read Mauna Kea was, you know, Tommy, I understand why you never came home. <laughs> because you come from the land, we were, ra- we were raised in the land of fear. And you live in the land of love, which she could see from repeated visits here, just the way people are. Well, the whole point is don't feel desperate or turn to anger yourself. There's empowerment in these concepts. And that's why your podcast is really crucial, uh, along with all these other things. There's plenty of good things going on out there. But if we spend our time thinking about Biden and Trump, yeah. And the Democratic Party are trying to defend the Democratic Party or the Republican Party at this point when they both are sure. pretty much out to lunch when it comes to where the future lies. Yeah, it's uh, which serial killer do you want to <laughs> pick as your leader? It's like, you know, the one who tortures you over a three-week period or the one who just shoots you in the head is a clean death. It's like, well... Well, the clean death's a little easier. So, sure, you know, could, now that you mention have that. another option? Or, no, that's like, it. That's no, all you get. Well, and, and the key thing is really about which one's going to shoot you in the head, but which one has actually got ideas. And I'm talking about which political party actually yeah. got ideas which can take us through the future. Now, there are individuals within those parties that do understand the nature of the problem, but they're under so many political constraints because, you know, as Bernie Sanders pointed out, the the finance system, you know, that's a whole other discussion. But in other words, I'm saying those parties don't represent what you can actually find on the ground among people. And, And if you, 
spend all your time watching MSNBC or M or, or I tell my friends, that's not where to pay attention if you're looking for genuine hope. And if you're trying to solve the problems yourselves by thinking it through, there are periods in history when the last people that understand it are the political elites, and then they ultimately are replaced. We're in a period like that. And so, you know, the problem is, will they be replaced by, <laughs> now we come back to Daniele's example, you know, totally ignorant right-wing response, or are they going to be replaced by, but the real alternative is not what we're seeing every day. So don't waste your time focusing on that. Think about how constructively in your own local community, you can learn and enunciate a different way of being and in your own personal life. Does that make sense? I see you both nodding. No, I think it makes sense. It makes perfect sense. The, the idea of execution, it's so terrifying. I watched two women, each in an $85,000 SUV in a drive through line, shrieking each other because the woman ordering was taking too long for the woman behind her's taste. So she just blasted her horn, which immediately made the woman in front be unable to move for the rest of history until she gets even with this woman. It was insanity. Yeah, These are people that have it as good as you possibly could. They have no nothing to worry about. They still find nothing to fight about. So that is the perfect setup for a great Arthur Rosenfeld story. Did he tell you? He's been on your program a couple of times, right? Yeah. Did he tell you the story about the Starbucks in Florida? Which one is the Starbucks? Yeah, I don't he, he drives that. up to Starbucks. He's on his way to go do his Tai Chi class. And there's a long line, and the person behind him is like scowling at him and beeping his horn. You know, he's waiting to get his stuff. And so he, he looks at this guy's face. He sees all the rage. It's just exactly what you described, okay? Now, this is Arthur Rosenfeld, and, and you can find this. Well, because it ended up on NBC News, what happened, okay? You know, you can. what happened is Arthur went into Wuji. And I don't need to explain that for your audience, I don't think. Okay. He went into Wuji and he said, when he got his drinks from the Starbucks person, he said, here's the money for mine and I'm paying for that guy behind me. Okay. So he stopped confrontation. So then the guy comes up, the next guy comes up, Arthur goes on his way. Next thing, Arthur comes, or the, 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 the enraged guy comes up, still enraged. And um, the guy says, oh, by the way, that guy in front of you just paid for yours. And this guy had ordered like for a whole family. It was like $20 or $30 or something. And Arthur paid for it. And so the guy was so taken by this act of generosity by the guy that he was yelling at and beeping his horn or whatever it was that he said, okay, I'm going to pay for the next person behind me. And that went on for the rest of the day. Wow. And then word went out in the community. You should see what's going on over there at Starbucks. This contagious thing that Arthur Rosenfeld started. So in comes an NBC reporter. It ends up on the national news. Now look, one moment of going into Wu Ji completely changed the dynamic. Now, if we just had some people doing Wu Ji, right? On the corporate level. <laughs> Well, or I'm thinking in Israel. Oh, yeah. But that's the other thing, to tie this back to Monarchia. I was, at the, I was on those police lines. I can tell you, when you see the riot police come 
they're going to take the elders away? As an American with our background, you know, it's not easy to stay in Kapu Aloha. But the Hawaiians have a whole method of making sure all of us stayed in Aloha. And that if any of us got out of line, they would turn us over to the police. Okay? It is possible. I have seen it with my own eyes. This dangerous thing that we're in can be turned around. But it happens at an individual and cultural level. And the Arthur Rosenfeld example is one. And that's coming from a Taoist went into Wuji, the Hawaiians who were relying on their faith in Aloha. And, you know, if you, you had to be there and see, you know, when the riot police show up, right, it's, you know, it could have been very different. Elsewhere in Hong Kong and elsewhere around the world at the same time, there were all these protests that were turning violent. Right now, the most significant place, I'd say what the Hawaiians have done is like what Martin Luther King was doing and what Gandhi was doing. And they would refer to them during these protests. And it's really important for people to realize not all the world is going down the track of more polarization of violence. And if you want an example, look at Polynesia, particularly look at the Native Hawaiians. I think that's a... Uh, that's, uh... Perfect spot to call it because that's a great, uh, great, that's a great segue into things. So, thank you so much for hopping on this conversation with us. Thank you for the books; that's fantastic. And I'll make sure to put links in the episode notes to this whole thing. Thank you, thank you, thank, thank you. you. Mahalo and aloha to both of you. Uh, and uh, ho, which means because Hawaiians don't like to say goodbye, so they say until we meet Til again. Next time. Awesome. Thanks so much. Beautiful. Well, the funky music means one thing. That's yet another fine episode of the Drunken Dows podcast. Well, that was, you know, Olaharific. Yes. Mahala. And, uh, awesome. We'll, uh, we are recording the ending without really know how the quality of the audio came through because Zoom is always an adventure, but hopefully it came out decent enough it's and be you lovely. guys enjoy the conversation. Absolutely. On that note... Mahalo. Should... Yes, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> Would you like to hear a terrible story? Yes, always. One day the rod shall teach you. What have we learned this week? Be calm, be kind, be brave. Yep, words to live by. See you guys. D B O L E L L I. Good shit. R I C H I M O N and the numeral one. And so ends another awesome episode of the Drunken Dows Podcast. Be sure to keep your ears peeled for another mind-expanding episode coming soon. We'll be tweeting you as they come out. You can keep track of Danielli at dbolelli. That's D-B-O-L-E-L-L-I. And you can find me on Twitter at Richimon1. R-I-C-H-I-M-O-N and the numeral one. We'll see you all soon. Woo!